Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry, and we are picking back up with Systematic Theology 3. And we're going to deal today with identity and the beginning of the church. Um, So all of this relates to the doctrine of ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. Uh, What we want to do is deal with when did the church begin and also a vitally related issue of the relationship between the church and the nation or people of Israel. So we're actually jumping into something that's pretty debated in some circles. Some of the listeners will be like, who cares? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And others are already sharpening their swords and like, (laughs) all right, let's do this. Um, it, unfortunately, it's got a lot of heat so often, but very little light on the subject uh, because the reality is, and, and I'm being brutally honest, but very few have actually studied these issues to any real degree. They've read a catechism, a confession, they've read R.C. Sproul on it or John MacArthur, whoever, but they've never really sat down and said, let's just look up every single passage that deals with this. I, if you remember in my ser- well, no, you you were up in at your campus, but um, I actually challenged my church here in Kenosha that if they didn't agree with my position on church in Israel, that was fine. But I did ask them look up every time the word Israel is used in the New Testament, every time, and deal with each one of them in their context. Just do that, and if you haven't, don't tell me you've studied the subject. And you know, I got some dirty looks, you know, but it's like. You know, people have made decisions, but they've made their decision not because they've studied, right? When we, we see that all the time, We're, we can be guilty of the same thing. And so something that we always fight against is what does the text actually say? Not a theology text, but what does the Bible actually say? So it, it makes for a challenge to discuss with others, but we think it's a good topic for a podcast because no one can interrupt us. That's why I like preaching. <laughs> That's it. Um, so why is this worth the time? Well, first, the biggest reason is the nature of worship. Um, we are called to be worshipers of God. Now, how that occurs and what that looks like, though, is quite different in the New Testament as opposed to the Old. For example, in the Old Testament, you're going to see many cultic practices mandated by God as proper worship. When we use the word cultic there, uh, people freak out. It, it simply means the rituals of worship. Like you have to sprinkle the blood in a certain way. You have to dip your finger and dab it on the earlobe or the toe or whatever. Those are the cultic practices. And they're very clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you don't see these things restated or applied to the New Testament church. And so why and how do we deal with that reality? Uh, This gets into the very fun topic of the regulative or normative principle of worship, but it also affects how you interpret massive parts of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament prophets. Um, So with that as our introduction, we're going to introduce these two theological points and hopefully shed at least a little bit of light on them for you. 
We won't devote massive amounts of time because neither of them lend themselves to really an in-depth discussion in this format. We would just put them to sleep. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is the beginning of the church. Now we did a whole, did, was it just one? I think it was just, just one. one. Okay. Yeah, we did, we did a whole episode on this. And so we'll actually put a link to that one in the show notes. And we would recommend that you listen to it. Today is just going to be a very, I mean, very abbreviated <laughs> version of that. Um, we would also suggest, uh, what we'd also suggest is that before you go any further in this, this podcast or this episode, um, either say out loud or in your mind when you think the church began. We should do uh, Jeopardy music. All right, that's five seconds. Okay. Okay. Sorry. People hate us. Okay. Fast forward, fast forward. Right. So so now that you you said it, ask yourself how you know that that is when the church began. Why why do you think that? How have you come to that conclusion? That's actually a good question. I hope they, they'll do it. Yeah. Um, so some say it began with Adam. Some say it began with Abraham. Some say it began with Moses. Some say it began with the earthly ministry of Jesus. Some say it began on the day of Pentecost. Some say it began during ministry of Paul. So when? Uh, and all of these are various positions. And there's many more. I think we covered 13 of them in that previous oh, man, episode. I can't remember. Um, yeah. So we want to give you now seven reasons, quick reasons, to see that the church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. These seven points are given in detail in, again, that former episode. So here we're just going to do a rather uh, quick pass through them. Uh, So before you dismiss them and ask why you're doing so, um, we would ask how much of your rationale is derived from the biblical text as opposed to a theology book or confession, because that is where a lot of uh, people's positions are being drawn from. And so with that, here are seven reasons we think to believe that the church came into existence in Acts chapter two at that day of Pentecost. First, there is evidence that the church was yet future in the time of Jesus Christ. So you'll see this in Matthew 16, 18, that very famous passage where Jesus says, I will build my church. That's a future tense and therefore signifying a future reality. Second, the church is uniquely indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is a very important point. That's a big one, yeah. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people for special power to accomplish a task. Um, But there is no indication that the Old Testament believer had the Holy Spirit indwelling in them like the New Testament church. And Jesus even picks that up in uh, John 14 when he says he dwells among you, but soon he will be in you. Yeah. So he makes the distinction. Uh, All believers throughout time have been regenerated by the Spirit, but that is not the same as being baptized by Christ with the Spirit or being indwelt by the Spirit as described, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And this is important to note, um, for it is through this spiritual baptism that you become joined to the church. Third, those who believe in Jesus Christ have a unique relationship with him. Um, they're, they're called uh, in Christ. That, that's one of Paul's favorites. Um, it's, it's unique to the epistles. The phrase in Christ is something that is not applied to those in the Old Testament. Yeah, you'll never never see something like that. Or in God, in Yahweh. 
Yeah, exactly. So, the, so something new is going on here, something different than in the ancient times. This is tightly connected to being baptized in the spirit into the church, which is the body of Christ. Again, no Old Testament event can come close to describing this. And we really don't want to downplay that. These that's a big one. You know, I like the way you said. It. You know, something new is going on. Um, and what? You know, is it just an updated version? And we're going to get to that in in a second. But it, it, is it just an updated version, or is there something unique, something new? So the fourth reason is that we have we see the gifts of the Spirit. So in Ephesians four seven uh, and following, and in First Corinthians twelve twelve and following, all the way through to chapter fourteen, God gives spiritual gifts, but He gives these spiritual gifts to the church for the well being of the church. So these are gifts for the church, but you will never find them discussed again in the Old Testament. So was the if the church was Israel and in the Old Testament, were they just giftless? You know, kind of like were they spiritless? They just didn't have the indwelling of spirit, or they weren't in Christ because of whatever reason. You know, these are things that are devoted specifically to the church and only the church. The fifth reason, uh, Christ is called the head of the church in Ephesians 1, uh, 18 through 23. And so we would simply say is, well, how was he the head prior to existing? Because this is tightly connected to Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension. That's what Paul does there. Is it's after he died, rose again, and ascended that he became the head of the church. Right. So prior to that, what who was the head of the church? Uh, if it existed even in the Gospels or if it existed back in the days of Isaiah? Was it a headless church, if you wish? Um, I know, I always chuckle with that. Um, it, who's who's that nearly Nick, ne nearly headless Nick with the Harry Potters? Oh, you've never I you've read, only the, read, I the, read the first book. Yeah, yeah, never mind. Then you're not even the guy to discuss this with. Um, sixth, <laughs> this is what uh, I was referring to a moment ago, there is a new work that's being done now, a work that has never been done before. Uh, Paul brings this out in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. So in, the, in verse 15, Paul explains that in the church, God is bringing the Jew and the Gentile together, and they're going to form this new entity. It's called a new man. And that term new speaks of something unique and fresh as compared to updated. So it's not renew. Yeah, it's not a renewed or... It's new. It's not church 2.0. Right. It's, it's like a completely new operating system. So in other words, the church is something unique and fresh. I brought this out dealing with the kingdom of God, that the eternal kingdom, when he says, and I beheld a new heavens and earth, that the word is the same word there for new. It's not that he's taken our broken world and just kind of fixing it and putting bandages. It literally is a completely new recreation of all things. And, and, and that's exciting and necessary for you to grasp. Well, the church is something in some way that is absolutely unique and fresh. And then the seventh reason is the mysterious character of the church. Now, you have to go back to the other episode to get the totality of scriptural references on that point. But this is what we're trying to say here, is that the church and what it re represents is what the New Testament calls a mystery hidden until it was revealed in the New Testament. 
And so this fits with the idea that this is something new and unique, as we said in that prior point. So as a result of these passages, and again, we deal with them much more in depth in the other podcasts, it appears proper to understand that the church was not something that was prophesied in any clarity in the Old Testament. That's because of the mysterious character. Uh, It was part of the mysteries that God chose to reveal later, just as he had chosen to reveal himself and his plan in a progressive manner since the fall. So Things that we didn't see in the Old Testament are then made clear and revealed in the New Testament. And, and that doesn't make the Old Testament go away. It just, we, we add to what was revealed. Exactly, yeah. So this leads then to the closely related point of the relationship between Israel and the church. And there are two main perspectives on this, and this tends to be very divisive within the church today. They are vitally connected to the discussion as to the inauguration of the church. The, the first view is just the replacement view or replacement theology uh, that the church has replaced Israel. Uh, the second view uh, is that they're actually two distinct groups, yeah. two different entities or realities. So Grudem, Wayne Grudem gives a helpful, it's a little bit long, but just hang in there, a helpful summation of the positions here. So listen carefully to this. He says, among evangelical Protestants, there's been a difference of viewpoint on the question of the relationship between Israel and the church. This question was brought into prominence by those who hold to a dispensational system of theology. On this view, the church did not begin until Pentecost or Acts 2. And it is not right to think of Old Testament believers together with New Testament believers as constituting one church. However, a number of leaders among more recent dispensationalists would not see the church as a parenthesis in God's plan but as the first step toward the establishment of the kingdom of God on a progressive dispensational view. So that's different. Yeah, that's... So we're not talking about dispensationalism. Classic C.I. Schofield. Right. Like anything, it, it matures and changes. Right. So now we talk about, or what he says here is something called progressive dispensationalism. So on a progressive dispensational view, God does not have two separate purposes for Israel and the church but a single purpose, that's key. The establishment of the kingdom of God, in which Israel and the church will both share. Progressive dispensationalists would see no distinction between Israel and the church in the future eternal state, for all will be part of the one people of God. Yeah, that's important. A lot of people stumble over that. Classic dispensationalism, they literally saw that Israel and church would remain forever separate and that there was a spiritual kingdom for um, for the church and the uh, earthly kingdom for Israel and never the twain shall meet. So, And that then over time, the progressive dispensationalists started to say, wait a second, there's just texts that don't work with right, that. Right, right, right. Uh, moreover, they would hold that the church will reign with Christ in glorified bodies on the earth during the millennium. However, there is still a difference between progressive dispensationalists and the rest of evangelicalism on one point. They would say that the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel will still be fulfilled in the millennium by ethnic Jewish people who will believe in Christ and live in the land of Israel as a model nation for all nations to see and to learn from. Therefore, they would not say that the church is the new Israel or that all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel will be fulfilled in the church, for these prophecies will yet be fulfilled in ethnic Israel. 
Both Protestant and Catholic theologians outside of the dispensational position have said that the church includes both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers in one church or one body of Christ. All right, so that's kind of lengthy, but he does a nice job of summing it up. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is the covenant theology position. Um, the New Testament church is seen in some way or another as spiritual Israel. Now, again, people go into conniption fits over that term, but they some of them use that term, some will use a different term. We're just saying for the sake of sanity, we're just going to talk about the spiritual Israel, that that's what the new church is. And so I'm going to quote here from Hodge um, and his theology. He, he makes this point. He says, the third proposition, the commonwealth of Israel was the church. It is so called in scripture in Acts 738. Uh, the Hebrews were also called or were called out from all of the nations of the earth to be a pe peculiar people of God. They constituted his kingdom. To them were committed the oracles of God. They were Israelites. To them pertained, uh, to them pertained the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service and the promises. That's Romans, uh, what, what is that? Nine four. Nothing more can be said of the church under the new dispensation. Uh, they were selected for a church purpose, namely to be witnesses up for God in the world in behalf of the true religion, to celebrate his worship, to observe his ordinances. Their religious officers, prophets, and priests were appointed by God and were his ministers. No man could become a member of the commonwealth of Israel who did not profess the true religion, promise obedience to the law of God as revealed in his word, and submit to the rite of circumcision as a seal of covenant. There is no authorized definition of the church which does not include the people of God under the Mosaic law. So that would be Hodge and his theology. Um, you'll notice that Hodge there argues that because the term ecclesia, that's what he's actually making the argument, was used in Acts 7 in reference to Israel, that this is evidence. But I want you to remember what we said about that term ecclesia in one of our earlier episodes. We pointed out that it actually is just neutral in meaning, and it refers simply to an assembly. So he's trying to make it a technical term, when in fact it's just a neutral term. Yeah. Um, he also says that nothing new can be said of the church that did not belong to Israel. But we just gave you seven clear differences that are not minor in any way. All right. seven of those are something new that do not belong to Israel in the Old Testament. So again, we would ask why. In addition, within the covenant theology camp, there is a lot of movement within it. Uh, and it's not easy to make a hard or fast statement regarding Israel and the church. In other words, they don't even really agree with themselves as a whole. The one thing that they can all seem to agree is that disbies are whack jobs. Yeah, I mean, we, right? We, we, we're yeah. the butt of jokes, we're this and that. So they can all agree that they're wrong, but then within their own camp, they can't quite agree themselves. And, and that's the nature of theology. We're not saying that that's proof of anything, but before anyone starts to ever say, well, you're wrong, it's like, do you guys even agree with yourselves yet? 
before right. you start saying that. So we leave you with that. Yeah. Now there are real consequences to this, whether you whether you think so or not, or whether you're aware <laughs> of them or not. <laughs> um, I like that. <laughs> it, it it affects how you view uh, much of what's written in the Old Testament. For uh, for example, the prophets give very specific promises to Israel that have yet to be fulfilled. Uh, again, we would say that that is no small thing. Either the prophets' words meant what they said, or they didn't. Uh, but to make whole swathes of scripture change in its meaning is, we would say that's just disturbing, uh, to say the least. So we'll deal with some more of that once we get to the eschatology portion of our systematic theology here. So we'll just, we'll leave that here for now. Um, the final area that's affected is on the nature of worship. One of the main arguments behind what is known as the regulative principle of worship is that only what is prescribed or commanded explicitly yeah. in scripture can be practiced in a church service. So that statement seems on the surface yeah. fine and reasonable, uh, but where do you look now in the Bible for those prescriptions? That's that, the question. That's where the rub. <laughs> yeah. So for those who see that Israel and the church are one and the same in some way, there is no issue for them in looking at the Old Testament to find rules for worship in Israel. Um, which again is fine if they're the same, the church in Israel is the same. But if they're not, then there's a real problem. And another challenge is to, to it is how literal are you going to take the commands uh, once you start poking at them, yeah. right? Um, there, there are some commands such as to greet one another with a holy kiss that are called cultural and therefore not practiced as commanded, uh, or the use of organs, uh, for instance, when never is an organ spoken of in the Bible, but it's explained that musical instruments were used in the Old Testament worship. This is why uh, Spurgeon actually considered any type of musical instrument to be worldly. Uh, no New Testament reference to musical instruments are found. So he said, uh, the human voice is so transcendently superior to all that wind or strings can accomplish that it is a shame to degrade its harmonies by association with blowing and scraping. <laughs> Golly, um, it is not better music, which we can get from organs and I guess it's violins viol or viols. Well, viols, it's, that's yeah. violin type. Yeah, yeah. Um, but inferior sounds. So that's what he regards them as. What a degradation to supplant the intelligent song of the whole congregation by the theatrical prettiness of a quartet the refined niceties of a choir or the blowing of wind from inanimate bellows and pipes. We might as well pray by machinery as praise by it. God. You think he was uh He's a subtle creature. Yeah. Huh? But but his point is is it's interesting because he would actually argue that the church in Israel are the same. But for him, he would not go back to the Old Testament to try to apply what yeah, he couldn't pull on those psalms which said this is for stringed instruments. Right, Yeah. right. And so he, it, it's very fascinating when you get into there, you start to get a hold of these different views, and, and it's like, yeah, but why that but not this? And uh, so he's right, though. No place in the New Testament does it ever say that you yeah, are to use, use any instrument. Yes. Right. So the reality that, though, many claim the regulated principle, they, they really don't follow it, at least in a strict literal sense. But then this is the point of contention we have in so many other parts of how people treat the subject of the church in Israel. They are literal in the proper sense of the word when it suits them, but then become spiritual when that suits them. The same person complaining about a video campus 
for instance, will be sitting on a pew arranged in such a way that did not exist either in the days of Israel or in the early church. Yeah, it, it's, it's fun. Once you start poking, like you said, just poking it, um, all kinds of um, rationalizations erupt. So there's people who would live and die in the regulative principle, and we don't. Right. No. So we have the other position, which is the normative. And the normative principle is this, that if it, it says that if something is not prohibited in the Bible, then it's allowable in the church gatherings. Now, proponents then explain that this allows for dramatic pieces, modern musical instruments, praise songs, or other songs that are not strictly psalms. Videos and cameras and soloists and such are also explained by this position. Critics, though, will point out that there is little by way of limitation as a result. Since the Bible was written in a time where it did not have video screens, fog machines, and Harley-Davidson motorcycles, it did not actually prohibit those things. So what would keep the church from including them? You see the pastor who rode up on the stage with his Harley? Uh-huh. Did you ever see that? Video? Yeah. Did you see the one where the guy drove up and then he fell off it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that maybe, was pretty maybe good. I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's been a few Harley incidents. Uh, and so, of course, these and many other things are actually being used in churches, and and they hide under the normative principle um, for the argument. They're like, well, it doesn't prohibit it, so who are you to be telling me that if this helps people learn something, that's good. So where do we land? Well, in neither of these places, in any formal sense, uh, we will describe instead the basic elements of a worship service which in itself is not even a biblical term. The idea of a worship service does not exist in the Bible. And and we're going to deal with that in another episode. We would simply argue that these elements need to be front and center when the church assembles, because there are clear statements as to what ought to be present when the church is gathered. In turn, we then would argue that anything that potentially distracts or detracts from those elements— should be rejected as a norm or very carefully used with care, right? I mean, you might try a dramatic piece at, on occasion or something like that, maybe, though I can't come up with a reason yet. Um, but at the core, what we see is that for some, this debate is so important that they end up missing the whole point that all of one's life is actually an expression of worship, not only when the church gathers. Right. Uh, We do not hold that the church is Israel, uh, is the fulfillment of Israel, has replaced Israel, or is the new Israel, um, because we're now in Christ. So we do not look to the worship in the Old Testament as a description of what we are to do either. Yeah. We would also argue that the motivation behind what is done or not done is far more important. Yeah, huge. So consider the rebuke given by Yahweh in Isaiah 29, 13 to Israel Uh, It says, then the Lord said, because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Um, So again, there you're seeing the heart is what matters. Yeah. Uh, Jesus told the women at the well in John 4, 23 through 24, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, a non-instrumental, psalm-only church that is filled with worldly hearts 
frankly, is an abomination. Yeah. A, a church with a full band or orchestra and a theatrical lighting and a sound that has a sincere love for God and a fidelity to his word is a joy. At the same... Oh, do, you, go ahead. do you think that... I hope they, they get the point there. It's like you can get all the components in your mind right and still manage to miss it. Israel sure did. Yeah. They were still doing temple worship. They were still doing all that stuff. And yet God's ready to cast them away into captivity. Right. You know, I, I think we we fail to grasp that the Lord really does want us worshiping in spirit and truth, that somebody who has a sincere love for God and he's expressing it yeah. out of that, um, there's much closer to solid sound worship than the best yeah. psalm singer who is also an adulterer on the side, you know? Right. Yeah, I always find that phrase fascinating where God says, I desire obedience, not sacrifice. Well, in one sense, sacrifice is a form of obedience, and yet it's not because they keep disobeying, so they need right. to give the sacrifice. But what he's after there is the heart behind it. Well, and then Jesus deals with uh, the Pharisees, like, you, you're so proud because you you uh, tithe your dill, mint, and cumin seeds. And then he says, and this you ought to do, right. but you've ignored the weightier issues. Yeah. So, yeah, you're supposed to do that. That's good, but you manage somehow still to also then cheat the widow. <laughs> good, jo yeah. good job, guys. Yeah, exactly. So at the same time, there are things that ought to be done regardless because they are commanded. So you must preach the word. You must pray. You must serve one another. You must remember the Lord's death and communion. So there are things there. Yeah. Uh, oh, actually, this is the verse I was just yeah, referring. So, yeah, I'll just read again. So, it, it, yeah, it is interesting in Matthew 23, 23, when he says, woe to you. So state, statement of judgment, that's what woe means, a prophetic term for judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Yeah. So again, he doesn't deny that those things are important, but there's more going on than yeah. just the act itself. And so he gives a word of absolute judgment. Yeah, that woe. Um, so there you go. When did the church begin? We argue it's Pentecost. And if you don't agree with this, fine. But make certain that you have a biblical argument, not just because the 1689 confession says yeah. so. And do check out that other episode. Yeah. Are the church in Israel the same? No. Did we resolve the issue? Nope. <laughs> not, not in the least. Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are nodding in agreement. Some of you are still wondering why the heck we just <laughs> devoted this much time to it. Hopefully, though, we did help show that there are sincere differences on these things. And those differences, though, have real consequences. That's what you should walk away with is what I believe about this should mean something then. Therefore, each of us should be very slow to shake our head and dismiss something unless we've thoroughly looked at it. And so we're going to develop some of this in greater detail further down the road. So consider this really just a precursor, something that makes you aware of some of the challenges so that you might be able to do some reading and thinking ahead of time. But as always, until next time, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We do want to hear your thoughts on the church. Don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review, connect on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Thank you.